My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. And then two years later, we went public at a billion to US and went up to 14 billion Aussie by March of 2000, you know. So, yeah, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a kid who grew up in welfare, on welfare in a single parent family in Gosford and ended up at a billionaire at the age of 36. And it was, it was all a bit of a shock. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Evan Thornley, tech entrepreneur and executive chair at Longview. He takes us on a journey through his early years which led him to jet off to Silicon Valley where his $14.2 billion story truly began. His rags to riches tale is nothing short of inspiring proving that no matter where you come from, learning is a lifelong adventure. Thornley may be an extremely successful billionaire who's rubbed shoulders with the tech industry elite, but he's never forgotten his roots. He remains as down to earth as he was growing up in a single parent household in Gosford, where his upbringing combined with his intelligence motivated him to form a new style of property advisory called Longview. The truth is I'm working here 80 hours a week, so I guess others might think I'm the CEO, but officially I'm the executive chair at Longview. Um, and uh, so we're a kind of very new style property business, um, we've gone from 40 to about 130 people in the last year or so, so things are moving quickly. I'll talk, talk about that in a minute. But um, I didn't start here. I'm not a property native. Uh, I'm a Silicon Valley native, actually. I grew up in Gosford, New South Wales, just north of Sydney. Um, uh, I ended up in a single parent family on welfare um, before it was popular. So um, in the early 1970s, uh, so um, uh, Gosford was sort of the unemployment and sole parent capital of the nation. It was not a very happy place to grow up. And my mum had four kids on her own um, and there wasn't, there wasn't even a sole parent's, uh, um, um, you know, welfare in those days. The only thing you could do was get what was called the widow's pension. So, um, yeah, so, so, so mum, mum had four kids, you know, under the age of seven at the age of 27 on her own on the widow's pension. It was pretty tough. For her, and um, that that was uh, uh, that, that that was where I came from, um, and then I kind of overcorrected a little from there. So. Thornley attributes part of his leadership abilities to his childhood, where he gained confidence as the second of four children in an unconventional family. Well, to be honest, Mum struggled a bit for a range of reasons, and so we were a little bit free range, <laughs> and um, 
and kind of had to bring ourselves up. So, um, you know, it was tough, uh, but uh, I guess I'm grateful for that now because, you know, I've become an entrepreneur and really a serial entrepreneur. This is my 14th startup, um, probably because of that, probably because as a, as a kid growing up, if I wanted something, I kind of had to find a way of getting it myself and that, that helped make you creative and resourceful. And then over time gave you confidence to take risks because you didn't have any choice to take risks when you were younger, but when you did and you learned how to do it and you got out of it okay, then it gave you more confidence later in life that perhaps people from more, more secure backgrounds wouldn't naturally have. So, you know, uh, all these things uh, can be a positive if you, uh, if you use them the right way. Long before his 14 startups, Thornley attended his local high school in Gosford on the New South Wales Central Coast. While he didn't quite fit the mould that his peers did, he found an outlet that suited him well. I just went to the local public school and then the local high school. Um, and um, I didn't really fit in, if I'm honest, because um, Gosford, Central Coast, New South Wales is really, is really a surf culture. And um, we didn't live close enough to the beach and mum wasn't taking me down the beach, so I didn't surf. So not that I didn't want to, but I, I didn't. So, um, so I was a kind of nerdy kid sitting at the front of the class, you know, um, not surfing. So um, I was a bit of a misfit and, uh, and my thing was really music. So I played drums and uh, that was really kind of my ticket out. And uh, when I was 15, I got the chance to move to Melbourne. To my, my dad was living in Melbourne at that stage. And uh, so I moved to Melbourne to play music basically. And, um, and uh, so, uh, but then um, just through a whole range of sort of bizarre circumstances, good luck and, and kindness, um, I ended up getting a scholarship to Scotch College in Melbourne for my last two years of high school, and um, they were very generous. Uh, and, um, uh, and and so that set me on a different path. And when my band broke up um, just before the end of high school, um, I, I, I couldn't pursue my music career in the short term, so I took up the option I had to go to law school at Melbourne University and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, ended up in the big end of town for a while. <laughs> Although he was passionate about his band and their music, their breakup ultimately changed the course of his life, which took him to Melbourne University and catapulted him towards his success. Melbourne Uni Law School then, it may still be now, I don't know, but at that stage was the hardest course to get into in Australia. So yeah, you had to, uh, you had to sweat it pretty hard to, uh, to get in that door. So it was probably lucky the band broke up. I'd started a business while I was in law school. My last two years of law school, I built a business up on campus, had about 10 people working for me. Um, setting up a chain of computer stores on campus and um, setting up a national brokerage for student newspaper advertising and a whole bunch of other things, uh, which I set up in my spare time um, uh, while I was going through law school. So um, I, I got to the end and I was offered my, my articles, as you have in law, you go to a, a law firm, but I actually realised that business was my real passion. And so I was lucky enough to, uh, you know, nine interviews later, but got a job at McKinsey & Company, the, uh, the management consulting firm. And so, so I ended up going into management consulting and, uh, you know, that was an amazing finishing school. You learn so much about business with incredibly smart people um, across a range of industries. So I made a lot of good friends and it, it was just a wonderful training ground. So I was at McKinsey for four and a half years and ended up then going to Kuala Lumpur and New York with McKinsey. Um, and... Um, yeah, got got a real business education real fast with a with a you know an amazing firm. So that was um, a great journey. Having his education paid for and setting foot in some of the world's biggest cities was just the beginning. 
From there, he took his business education and set his sights on a different venture. My passion was media and I was trying to get into the media practice in New York and it took me four years to convince the firm to send me over there. So um, I mainly worked in oil and gas, actually. Um, I, I, you know, I still know a little bit about offshore oil and gas and, you know, which acreage is perspective and, you know, various engineering platforms you need to do it and stuff like that. It's funny how you retain useless information. But, um, yes, yeah, so I learned a lot about offshore oil and gas. Um, uh, uh, I think uh, when I was in at university, I was uh, I was president of the student body and I was quite active in student politics on the... Uh, on, on the uh, progressive side. So I thought McKinsey probably wanted to check that, you know, I was willing to sort of be part of transnational capitalism. So my first study when I started was actually with a private South African-owned tobacco company. Uh, I think they were testing me out, you know, which was Rothmans. So, so my first study at McKinsey was looking at the vending machine business in Rothmans, um, which actually was fascinating. To give some context and background to his career, he explains what he did as a management consultant at McKinsey. McKinsey is sort of a very particular type of sort of elite consulting firm. I mean, we basically work for the, the chairs of the board and the CEOs of large public companies and helping them solve, you know, some of their biggest challenges as businesses when, um, you know, it helps to have some outside expertise and fresh ideas brought in uh, at a senior level in a big company if you can't always get that up coming through. So, um, yeah, so, you know, I... All of our work was confidential to our clients, but I think it's now 30 years ago, so I can probably, I can, you know, I worked with BHP's petroleum arm and uh, it became clear to me that the most important driver of their success was not actually how good their geologists, geophysicists and platform engineers were. And of course, those were the heart and soul and crown jewels of their company was the engineering. Um, actually what determined whether they made money or not was the fiscal terms that they got their acreage from the host governments and therefore government relations turned out to be the most important success factor for them. That wasn't something as an engineering oriented organisation they were kind of likely to kind of really attach themselves to but you analyse the history of the last 40 years of their business and it was clear that that was actually the defining factor. So that's the sort of thing you did as a management consultant bring fresh eyes analyze facts without any emotion because you're not personally you know tied to and it's not your career and it's not so you can just look at look at the facts look at the numbers and try and objectively say where does this business make money and where doesn't it and why and often it doesn't make its money where the people who operate it think that it does which seems crazy but um it's true and and i guess honestly it's exactly that same lens that i've then um come into property uh, as an outsider and tried to bring the same lens. And it's been really shocking to me um, how much misunderstanding there is about property and what drives value. Um, and, and particularly what really shocks me is that people who should know better, uh, like the economists of the major retail banks and various other commentators that are all over the newspapers every day, um, talk unmitigated nonsense about property prices um, um, that, that just have no basis in fact. Um, and so that's always been surprising to me, but I guess my, my, my background at McKinsey was just to say, look, I don't know anything about this, so I'll start by looking at the facts and analysing the facts. And, and I guess in some ways that's been very helpful training. Thornley, along with Anthony Cohen and Cathy Stubbings, founded Longview in response to the frustration they experienced with the short-term focus of the real estate industry in Australia. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because we've got some core parts of our business that are relatively traditional real estate business. We have a large property management business that has about 4,300 properties under management. And we have a, a significant buyer's advisory team that you know, buys uh, hundreds of properties every year for clients. Um, but we've also got a significant data science team and a whole separate team now that's building. Uh, we're about to launch in the next few weeks our first um, property investment fund um, and uh, that will be offering shared equity investments for young home buyers who don't have sufficient deposit to get themselves into a home and uh, and then there's uh, there's a bunch of things we hope to do from there so yeah so so I'm I'm doing mainly what I normally do which is build new stuff um, but I've got a really capable team who lead the traditional parts of the business and the traditional parts of the business are critical to deliver the new stuff well. Longview itself is just six years old, although Thornley has been investing in property for over 30 years in both Australia and the US. He's observed the property journeys of 4,500 property investors over the last six years, seeing the consequences of their journeys firsthand. There's many things that I've learned and one of them is all other things being equal, I'd rather own 1% of 100 properties than 100% of one property. Um, and for a whole lot of reasons. And all the more so if those 100 properties were really bought well by people who you know, had uh, very good data and very good field experience. So um, if I could own 1% of some really good properties, of 100 really good properties, then I will almost certainly do much, much better than if I own 100% of one property that I I'm trying to figure out for myself how to do it well uh, because, you know, most people in many of the journeys you describe, uh, you know, people get good at this, but they get good at this over a sustained period of time and they make mistakes and, and it's a long lead time game and every mistake's got stamp duty associated with it. So, you know, um, we think that there's a much lower risk way of people getting exactly the same outcomes uh, that they're looking for. Well, actually better outcomes, but the same type of outcomes and usually better outcomes ultimately if they end up investing in in a professionally managed fund that does the same things that they would be doing individually but can do it at scale and with you know with data science and proper field support so so that's what we're doing so the first one of those funds will be uh, not investing in properties directly but will be doing something that's suddenly become very flavor of the month in the last uh, month or so but investing uh, in offering shared equity to usually but not always young home buyers who don't have enough capital for their deposits um, and uh, so we can provide that capital in exchange for a share of the capital growth on the property and most importantly we can help make sure they buy the right property that's a good fit for them and their families and that is going to be a good investment for them and then obviously also for our investors so so that will be our first uh, fund and then and then after that we'll be launching I hope uh, a large-scale rental property fund traditional rental properties but uh, where we hope to ultimately be buying and managing, you know, thousands of properties and then creating an opportunity for people to invest in property in that way uh, as an alternative to or as a supplement to what they do in their own individual properties. He had found a gap in the market that had gone unnoticed and he was determined to be the one to start chipping away at it. As you know, the biggest asset class in the country is residential property. It's $10 trillion. The Australian Stock Exchange and everything on it is $3.3 trillion. Um, and yet, 
there's not a single investment grade option for people to invest in residential property. Um, in terms of um, in terms of an equity investor in residential property in anything other than new property development. And that's not really a property investment, that's a manufacturing investment. You know, property development is, I hope that I can sell something for more than it costs me to build it. That's fine. That's really a manufacturing business. That's not what I would call a property investment. A property investment is when you buy a piece of property um, and you, you profit from its long-term growth. And um, so, you know, 3% of the residential property market is new build, 97% is existing dwelling. Um, 21% of the residential property, $10 trillion is the debt that's provided by the banks. The other 79% is the equity that is the owners of the property. So of that $10 trillion, $7.6 trillion is equity in existing dwellings. And that's a lot of money. And yet, and, and from two and a half million mums and dads, which is amazing. And yet, not a single option exists for them or others who may not want to buy and manage their own properties to invest in in that asset class, in residential property, in bricks and mortar, um, in the same way as you can invest in almost every other type of investment. You know, there's more crypto funds in Australia than there are existing dwelling residential property funds. And that just makes no sense to me whatsoever. So when we say a gap in the market, like it's hidden in plain sight, there's a $7.6 trillion gap in the market, which, you know, pretty soon you're talking real money. Yeah, it is. It sounds amazing to be able to tap into it. <laughs> you just need a percent of that and, you know, that's enough there. Obviously, a lot of your listeners are very much the people who are really working hard to do this themselves uh, and to learn from others' journeys and their mistakes and their benefits and, and, and try and get better quicker. And, and it's fantastic and it's exciting and it's rewarding. Um, but not everybody can or wants to or frankly should be doing that all for themselves but everybody who wants to invest in property for all the reasons that we all want to invest in property should be able to so that's where we're trying to take long view over the over the medium term um and and so our traditional when i call them traditional they're, they're very sort of tech enabled and and high quality um, but our traditional property management and buyers advisory businesses serve individual clients and their individual properties, but then that those skills and that team will then be able to start doing the same thing for these property investment funds over time. Coming up after the break, Thornley discusses what he prides himself on most when it comes to property. There are three huge industries that are associated with residential property, but they're only associated with certain parts of it and have a certain perspective and there's nobody representing the rest of it, which is us, the mums and dads. He reveals the harrowing conversation he has to have each and every day and why it's so painful for both himself and his clients. Everyone just thinks there's a property market, it goes up, I just need to get on the ladder and then all boats will rise. We delve further into his influence on internet search marketing and how he pioneered the way how we search online today. And six weeks later, I quit my job, raised money and started an internet startup, which became Australia's first tech startup listed on the NASDAQ, um, first tech unicorn, first one to deliver a hundred times their money to the investors and the rest is history. And that's next. I'm Taran Shum and you're listening to Property Investory.
Hey there. Over the years, I've built up a portfolio of properties and it's been great to see capital growth. But the challenge I face is the passive income has been quite poor, providing a net return of 3 to 4% per annum. I'd have to buy at least 10 properties or more to generate $100,000 per year. Now, if I had the cash to buy these outright, which I didn't, then I need the help of banks and as they wouldn't lend me more, I was stuck. This is when I start looking into alternative investments where I could use my equity and cash to generate 25 to 30% per annum returns and fast track my passive income goal. In a short space of 2 years, I've been able to achieve this goal and have tripled my passive income instead. Now, if you want to learn more on how I did this, SMS me your name and email address on 04-88-88-31-32 and I'll send you a free report explaining how I did it. As a management consultant, Thornley acted as a fresh set of eyes for a business by walking in, analyzing and identifying the areas of success. As you may imagine, coming up with an appropriate recommendation for a typical assignment took its fair share of time. Your typical consulting assignment, I mean, you work like 80 to 100 hours a week um, in a really small, super high caliber team. I think McKinsey was the biggest employer of, you know, Rhodes Scholars and Harvard Business School graduates and stuff. It was pretty, pretty smart people. Um, and, and look, you know, your, your studies would normally go between three and six months. So you had to get in fast and really get on top of things. Um, and, and so that's how that worked. But the, we've applied the same skills here. And I guess, as I say, Longview's been going six years. So um, whilst I've obviously been a property owner and property investor for, for 30 uh, or more, um, 35 years now, um, really the last six years I've spent full time as we've been building Longview. And I think, you know, you learn more and more as you go along. I, we've probably learned as much in the last 12 months as we did in the previous five years. Um, but we learn a lot in the previous five years, but your learning actually picks up speed if you have that mentality. Um, far from getting sort of comfortable and saying, okay, I understand all this now. The more you know, the more you actually learn about things that you don't know and you, you didn't know that you didn't know. <laughs> um, so we're learning more and more. And you know, now I've got a, you know, we've got a data science team on board and we can really get over it. And you know, property is a wonderful industry. It's full of high quality data. You know, we're, we're analysing the sale price of every single property in Australia for the last 50 years. Like, so you've got everything that opens and shuts there, right? And so there's really no excuse for people who should know better with, you know, large companies like banks or, or others or, you know, government economists or people like that. You know, for people who've got resources and access to data and analytics, there's really no excuse to peddle to peddle the nonsense that gets peddled about property all the time. And, you know, if ever we've seen it, you know, we're, we're talking in the tail end of a federal election campaign where housing policy is probably the single biggest issue. Um, and and there's just unmitigated nonsense talked all around. Um, and that's just interesting to me. Over his time as an outside analyst, Thorne learned things about residential property that he would never have otherwise. There are three huge industries that are associated with residential property but they're only associated with certain parts of it and have a certain perspective. And there's nobody representing the rest of it, which is us, the mums and dads, right? So there's a huge industry in new property development, okay? There's a huge industry in real estate sales, and there's an absolutely enormous industry in mortgage lending. And so all of the commentary on residential property is driven by those three industries. And of course, they all have an important role to play. 
but if you remember what I said at the start of the conversation, there's two voices that aren't heard in that. The voice of the $7.6 trillion of existing dwelling residential property equity, no voice for that. The single biggest asset class in the country by factor of two, no voice, no company, no advocacy, no nothing. Um, and, you know, Australia's 5 million tenants, no voice. Um, so, and, you know, largely speaking, Australia's young home buyers, no, no, no voice, although they politically are active. So, so the voices that speak the loudest in the media have a particular set of interests and have a particular just understanding that is appropriate and relevant to their industry, but is not the way that it makes sense to actually us mums and dads who are investing in property. We're, we're looking down the other end of the telescope, right? It, it, it looks different from our end and there's nobody to give that voice and to, to give clarity. And so it gets very confusing for people. Mm, and why do you think that has been overlooked from your sort of view? Look, the fragmentation. Um, you know, the wonderful thing about property is that, you know, two and a half million uh, families in this country can buy an investment property. Um, and, and, and thank goodness, uh, many more can, can own their own homes. Um, but there's no uh, aggregation of that in any way, shape or form, really. I mean, there's a few, you know, there's, a, you know, there's um, some small property investors associations and things, which is all great, but there's really, it's incredibly fragmented. Um, and, and then the only people that really work day to day in the space, which is the real estate industry, is entirely driven by the shortest of short-term short views, which is the view of a real estate sales agent who can see precisely five weeks into the future, right? I mean, and, and tell you no matter what's going on, that today's a great time to sell. And so you've got a $16 billion industry in real estate sales that has the shortest of short views in, in a business that is the longest of long view businesses, right? I mean, you know, there are ways you can make money you know, with renovating and flipping and stuff in residential property, but the vast majority of the wealth that's made in residential property is made over the long term in the capital growth in those property. And there is nobody, none of those industries, businesses make money out of that long-term growth in property value. So none of them talk about it. So none of them know anything about it. And most of what they do talk about it is nonsense. Yeah, people want the short-term view, which is interesting. That really gets brought into property investors, you know, the, all the stories are, you know, the block and, you know, renovate and flip and all the stuff. And, that, and that's fine. Obviously, good people who do that well can make some good money doing it. But the vast majority of people have neither the time nor the expertise nor the luck to do that well. The vast majority of people own properties for the long term. And the single most important thing, which nobody tells anyone, is that it really matters that you buy the right property. Everyone just thinks there's a property market, it goes up, I just need to get on the ladder and then all boats will rise. And, you know, we have a conversation literally every day with a client who has bought the wrong property. Um, and they usually say, yeah, oh gosh, I thought it was worth more than that. I, I thought the market would have gone up by now. And we have to say, actually the market on average has gone up, but not for you because you bought the wrong property. It's a really tough, it's a heartbreaking conversation. Um, and and we, we have that conversation literally every day. Um, and yet there's industries full of people that are there to trick people into thinking so long as you get on the ladder, usually by buying my property, if they're a real estate sales agent or property developer, somehow everything then is going to be great. And and it, 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 it quite perversely, in fact, the people that say that the most, their properties are usually the worst investment, right? New build apartments are almost without exception a catastrophically dreadful investment. And yet, you know, 
half or more of the new build apartments are bought by people who think that they're making an investment. His life dream had always been to be in the media business in one way or another. While his career as a musician didn't eventuate, he was able to achieve his dream in another sense. I eventually got to the New York media practice of the firm, which is what I wanted to do, and that was in 1994. And just at that time, this thing called the internet was just starting. And that was fascinating to me. And, you know, I got online before the web, actually, before, you know, browsers and the web, in the original clunky internet where you had to have, like, stuff programmed in Unix and, yeah, you know, CompuServe and all this stuff, right? Um, And then this thing called Mosaic came out, which was the precursor to Netscape. Um, And I'd heard about it. I hadn't seen it. I was in the office late one night in the New York office of McKinsey, and uh, a mate of mine, a British guy called Richard Blue, said, oh, I've got Mosaic on my computer. Do you want to see it? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've heard all about this thing. It sounds amazing. So he fires this thing up. And and three seconds later, we're looking at apartments to rent in London, point and click. You know, this is 1994. And, yeah. And I just literally, the light went on and I just turned to Richard and said, mate, this is going to change the world. Like, this is going to change the world. And six weeks later, I quit my job, raised money and started an internet startup, which became Australia's first tech startup listed on the NASDAQ, um, first tech unicorn, first one to deliver a hundred times their money to the investors and the rest is history. But um, yeah, we really came from that light bulb moment. The moment I saw, you know, what we all now know and don't even think about it. Here's a browser, you point, you click, you go. Like the first time I saw that, I just went, oh, wow, the world is just about to change really big here. His tech unicorn took him from New York to Silicon Valley, where major technology, internet and software companies are born and based. Here, he sat ringside with some of the biggest names that are still around decades later. We were one of the early search uh, internet search firms, and then we pioneered uh, some of the things that you, everyone takes for granted now in terms of search-targeted advertising. So, so I built a company called LookSmart back in the day. So, you know, I think I think we peaked at a market cap of fourteen billion dollars, which was you know real money in those days. I think we were number six on the Australian Stock Exchange when we dual listed back on the ASX from the Nasdaq as well. Um, yeah, so a, a fascinating and wild ride. Um, but yeah, we we were I guess the first Australian you know IT company to. Uh, to cross the pond in that way, end up listing on NASDAQ headquartered out of Silicon Valley and, um, and, and you know, went through the boom, went through the bust, came out the other side, got the business on track and, you know, learnt a lot. And um, yeah, there's lots of great war stories from that time. It was an incredible experience. LookSmart was born thanks to Thornley's client work at McKinsey, where he was serving the oldest media company in the world. It actually came through my client work at McKinsey. So we were serving in the media practice um, of all people, um, Reader's Digest, the oldest and stodgiest media company in the world. Uh, and I'd, I'd helped the, the chairman and CEO there, a lovely guy called Jim Schott, kind of explain to his board why the new world was coming and they were not well positioned for it. And he appreciated that work. And he tried to hire me to kind of help him turn the company around. And I said, look, I'd love to, but I really want to do some internet stuff. And he's like, what's that? And I explained it to him. And then I said, you know, Jim, in some ways, if you're looking for a growth strategy to build the next generation of customers here, this what I'm thinking of doing actually might be relevant to you. I hadn't thought about it till we're speaking now. But, you know, the, the Reader's Digest business, the old Reader's Digest magazine that you sort of see in doctor surgeries and stuff, is the biggest circulation magazine in the world. Didn't make very much money as a magazine. But what it did was it created a mailing list 
for the 12 million subscribers, I think, for the magazine. And then they do direct mail of books, music and video to that list. And that's where they made all the money. So I said, look, the magazine is the big front door that gets everyone in. And then the back end is where you make your money in books, music and video. And I said, Internet search is going to be the new big, big, big front door. And everyone's going to go through search through that big front door and then to whatever it is they want to buy. And so search is going to be the power position on the Internet. Um, and that's why I want to go do it. And to be honest, you guys could probably think about doing it, too, because um, Last time I checked, you need some growth options and fast. So that was my first ever investor pitch. Um, I, I walked out 45 minutes later with 10 million bucks. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, we swung the bat, right? Gosh, that's amazing. And that's where your story really started there. <laughs> Look, all that sounds great. Um, unfortunately, things moved too slowly on what we were doing for Jim. He got fired by the board and the old guard took the company over and wanted to take it back to the Stone Age. And so... They called me up and said, what's this internet thing? You guys send us your shutdown plans. We're not spending any money on this. And I'm like, yeah, okay, well, here's my shutdown plan. Um, it'll cost you you know, this much to pay off the creditors and this much to do this and that. And you're a Fortune 500 company, so you'll do the right thing by the employees. And then you know, my shareholder lawsuit, I don't know, you'll probably settle for somewhere between three and five million. Um, but here's the alternative. Just give me a couple of months of funding and give me my company for nothing. And that'll cost you a quarter as much. And if I'm any good, I'll give you a slice of the company and you'll get your money back. And if I'm not, then it costs you a third as much as shutting me down. So, so you know, I made them an offer they couldn't refuse. And so they gave me my company back for nothing. I gave them a small share of the company. They ended up making 10 times their money. Um, um, my Australian investors made 100 times their money and things worked out okay. But, but we then walked through the valley of the shadow of death then for nine months i went within two days of not being able to meet payroll nine times in six months i was raising like fifty thousand bucks at a at a time with 65 people on my payroll um with my house on the line with like everything it was just a total nightmare but we we just got through we just sneaked through and and then two years later we went public at a billion to us and went up to 14 billion Aussie by March of 2000, you know. So, yeah, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a kid who grew up in welfare, on welfare in a single parent family in Gosford and ended up at a billionaire at the age of 36 and it was, it was all a bit of a shock. How do you feel now looking back at it <laughs> to talk about it now? <laughs> it kind of is surreal, you know. I mean, you know, Silicon Valley during the internet boom was just, you know, the wealthiest insane asylum on earth, right? I mean, there was just money sloshing around in the streets. An incredible collection of incredibly smart, capable, incredibly hardworking people. But, you know, it was, it was the Wild West and we were, we were right in the middle of it, you know. I mean, you know, I saw Google in a garage, you know, like... <laughs> it's uh, in an office block, but, you know, like a garage. It was like, yeah, so I had a ringside seat to history. With Google, Yahoo and Bing as the dominant players at the time, Thornley knew it was time to exit. He just needed to find a way to do it successfully. We moved from being search itself to search advertising and working on creating search targeted marketing. So what is now the sort of Google AdWords business model was really pioneered by two other startup companies, which was us and a company called goto.com. Um, and so, so that's where that, that business ended up going, was sort of pioneering a new, a new way of creating revenue within search and, and, and that worked out well, but I came home. And... Thornley recognizes that everything he knows now about property 
He has learned in the six years since he built Longview. The thing that's really interesting to me, having, as I say, you know, along the journey, I've bought and sold a bunch of properties, some as investments, uh, some obviously as, as homes and holiday homes. And, um, you know, I've, I've, as you can imagine, uh, I've had some pretty nice trophy properties over the years. If I'd known way back then what I know now about property, I would have been a lot more interested in it a lot earlier. Um, and, you know, I, I, it just, again, it just... It, it just confuses the heck out of me that the big end of town knows nothing about property. They know everything about every other type of investment and nothing about residential property. And and yet the mums and dads of Australia do. And and they're the ones who are out, you know, the $2 trillion in residential property investing in this country is all mums and dads. Um, but there's no one to help them. And, and, you know, what led to the founding of Longview is I came back, my business partner, uh, Anthony Cohen, uh, he and I worked in another tech startup together and, you know, he'd been 28 years at KPMG and we were both, you know, investing in properties and we were sort of like, well, I was at McKinsey, you were at KPMG. Who are the good advisors I can go to to get good, you know, good professional advice on residential property? Like I get, you know, if I want good legal advice, I get a good lawyer. If I want good tax advice, I get a good accountant. Who do I go to to get good advice about residential property? Like we're playing with real money here, you know, it's a million here and a million there. Like, and there's no one. There was no one. And there is no one. And so, you know, I talk to clients all the time now who, had they been properly advised, could have in particular avoided mistakes. My view generally about residential property is you put in the hard work to make sure you don't make mistakes, right? The, the, the hard grinding work, the good analytics, the good due diligence, the right financing structure, the buying the right property, you do all those things to make sure you don't make mistakes. And if you don't make mistakes, you'll end up doing just fine. And sometimes you'll end up doing a lot better than just fine. And most of that upside is luck, right? So, but I think there's, I think there's not a lot of luck involved in avoiding mistakes. It's hard work to avoid mistakes. And then there's, and, and if you avoid mistakes, you'll do fine. And then if you get upside from there, then, you know, you may be a genius or you may just be lucky. Ethan Thornley's story continues in the next episode of Property Investory. We delve into his biggest motivators for returning to Australia. That was my other motivation and I, I spent a lot of years when I came back uh, trying to do that, setting up think tanks and trying to sort of get reform in that organization. How if these guys didn't know what they were doing, the realization that everyday mums and dads didn't either. I was correct. I really did know nothing. Um, but then it was so hard to find someone else to help it. So, and 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 my, my friend and colleague Anthony was the same, uh, despite you know being a senior guy at KPMG for twenty eight years. He explains how switching trains can be the smartest thing you'll ever do, no matter where you are on your journey. Hundreds of thousands of people every year exit property investment as an idea and never come back and get their, you know, no one talks about that because everyone spruiks all the upside, but. You know, they exit the industry because they, they get their fingers burnt really badly. And that's next time on Property Investory. If you love the show and you're a wholesale investor wanting to learn more about how I got started in alternative investments, where I've been able to use my equity and cash to generate 25 to 30% per annum returns to fast track my passive income goal, then SMS me your name and email address on 048888. 3132 
to register your interest. Now, in a short space of two years, I've been able to achieve my goal and have tripled my passive income. To find out how, SMS me your name and email address on 04-88-88-31-32. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 